Let's turn in our Bibles to Jeremiah chapter seven, chapter 18, as we've been following along in the book of Jeremiah. And also, uh, if you would, take a moment and turn also to Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 12. Jeremiah 18 and Isaiah 40, verse 12. The Old Testament prophets have a great deal to say about the sovereignty or the majesty of God. Uh, probably uh, nowhere uh, do you get the uh, tremendous picture of God's majesty that you do in uh, the books, for instance, like that of Isaiah and, and uh, Jeremiah. Daniel, James I. Packer, in his very helpful book, Knowing God, says that really what our generation of Christian needs is a fresh view of the majesty of God. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And this speaks of his majesty and his worthiness to be worshipped. But we have somehow lost that. And he says, uh, this is the knowledge which Christians today largely lack, and that's one reason why our faith is so feeble and our worship so flabby. Uh, we are modern men, and modern men, uh, though they cherish great thoughts of man, have as a rule small thoughts of God. And he refers us to the title of the book by J.B. Phillips, Your God is Too Small. And it says, when the scripture writers or the prophets would bring out this aspect of God's greatness, his sovereignty, his majesty, and have it impinge upon our hearts, one of the ways that they go about it is to uh, compare things, uh, compare him with things, powers, uh, and forces that we regard as great. An instance of this you find in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12 following. Notice Isaiah 40, verse 12. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and meted out heaven with a span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountain in scales, and the hills in a balance? In other words, here we've got... Uh, God saying, look at the task that I have done in uh, creating uh, this world and in controlling it. Could you do that? And as we think about it, we begin to get some idea of the greatness of God. Or, uh, next, says Isaiah, uh, look at the nations. <clears throat> uh, Behold the nations, verse 15 of Isaiah 40, Behold the nations are as a drop of a bucket, and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing. Uh, the great national powers at whose mercy you feel yourselves to be, Assyria or Babylon, you stand in awe of them, but to God they are a drop in the bucket. Uh, look at the world. 
And uh, we think of the complexity of the world and all of the peoples that populate the world. But compare God to that in verse 22. It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers, that stretcheth out the heavens as a tent to dwell in. Uh, Fourth, look at the world's great men, the governors whose laws and policies determine the welfare of millions, the would-be world rulers, the dictators, the empire builders, uh, who have it in their power seemingly to plunge the globe into war. Think of Sennacherib or Nebuchadnezzar, or think of uh, Alexander the Great or Napoleon or Hitler or the greats of our day. But look what he says uh, in verse 23, that bringeth the princes, the rulers of this world, it means, to nothing. He maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. They are nothing compared to him. And uh, then finally he compares God to the stars in verse 26. Lift up your eyes on high. And behold, who hath created these things, that bringeth out their hosts by number? He calleth them all by names, by the greatness of his might. For he that is strong in power, not one faileth. Think of the tremendous distances, the light years, the billions of light years involved in the universe, the expanse of it that boggles our minds. Compare God. He spake, and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. So this is Isaiah's way of trying to just bring home to our hearts the majesty, the sovereignty of God. And as tremendous as that is, I really believe that the scene that we have in our study in Jeremiah today brings it home even more. In Jeremiah chapter 18, you have uh, God given an instruction to Jeremiah to go down to the potter's house. In verse 1, the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause thee to hear my words. Now we remember the background that uh, Jeremiah prophesied in uh, the early 600 B.C.s that uh, he's in the area there of, say, 650 on down to 606 and thereabouts. And uh, the northern kingdom, the kingdom was divided. The northern ten tribes were destroyed a hundred years earlier by Assyria because of their unfaithfulness to God. But now the southern kingdom is following in the same path of unfaithfulness. And God has sent prophet after prophet, and uh, one of the final prophets here to warn the nation to turn is Jeremiah. And Jeremiah has called on the nation time and again to admit its sin and to turn from it. And here we have one more instance of an effort. Now this The nation has not turned. We have this instruction to Jeremiah to go down to the potter's house as God is going to seek to bring to bear his majesty on the peoples of this nation that's going astray. The observation of the potter in verse 3, Then I went 
down to the potter's house. And behold, he wrought a work on the wheels. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter, so he made it again another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to make it. Here's the observation of the potter. When Jeremiah goes to the potter's house, what does he see? Well, he sees the potter at his ancient occupation there, and the basic approach hasn't really changed much over the years. There have been great changes in terms of how you put the finish on the pots after you made them, the way you glaze them, the way you paint them, uh, uh, burn images into them or whatever. But as far as the clay and the wheel and the molding with the hands, it's all basically the same. Oh, you have an electric motor running it now, but basically the same approach. And what he observes is this. First, he sees the potter, and it says he wrought a work on the wheels. Here's the potter with his wheels, and as the clay is turning before him and he's working with it in his hands, he's making a pot. But then the next thing, as he watches, he sees that the potter is dissatisfied with something. He, uh, it, either he hasn't made it just like he wants it or something is wrong. And it says, the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hands of the potter. As he observes, suddenly the potter who's working with the vessel just says, and takes it and smashes it. And then it says, so he made it again another vessel as seemed good to the potter to make it. He takes it and he begins to rework it, having smashed it. And he does it as it seems good to the potter to make it. That's what's observed as Jeremiah just goes and watches. Then the application. <clears throat> the application to the nation. In verse 5, we have the comparison of God's sovereignty over Judah with that. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, and here it would be Judah, the remnants of Israel, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, saith the Lord? Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in my hand, O house of Israel. God's sovereignty. God says, I'm like the potter, and you're like the clay. O house of Israel, O nation of Judah. I can smash you just as that potter smashed that clay down. In the 19th chapter, God has... Jeremiah, take a bottle and go out publicly and stand and just suddenly take it and smash it to the ground and then say, now, that's what God's going to do to this nation if we don't repent. And this is the lesson that he's bringing home to hearts. The Jews gloried in their relationship with God, and they felt that that God was obligated to bless them, that they, they had an inviolable contract with them, that he would bless them because they were Abraham's seed, no matter how they treated his prophets, no matter how they disobeyed his word. We see the, uh, the application to the nation. 
Uh, the first thing, the comparison of the sovereignty of God with that potter and the clay. The second part of the application is the elaboration on his power over the nations. In verse 7, At what instance I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up and to pull down and to destroy it? Notice, at what instance I shall speak concerning a nation. If that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. Now, we need to understand that God is speaking in human terminology. When we compare Scripture with Scripture, we know that known unto God are all of his works from the beginning of creation. We know that, uh, as uh, the Shorter Catechism puts it, uh, the plan of God, or the uh, foreordination of God, his eternal purpose, the decrees of God, or his eternal purpose, whereby, according to the counsel of his own will, for his own glory, he hath before ordained whatsoever comes to pass. That God doesn't change his mind. That God has an eternal plan that's unchangeable that he's working by. That's one side of the truth. But the other side of the truth is that we're not puppets. We are real moral beings. And the way God responds within that plan is that his actions are directly related to our actions. And while he is sovereign, and he doeth his will in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? That are, those sovereign actions are predicated on man's response to his word and to his call. If that nation against whom I have pronounced evil turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. In other words, God's ability to reverse his decision to destroy a nation. Now, all of that is speaking humanly. And all of that has to be balanced off by his eternal, unchanging plan. But this is one great, immense side of the truth as it impinges on us and our response to him. Think of Nineveh. There was a nation against whom God had pronounced to pluck up and to pull down and to destroy. And he sent Jonah to announce that. Jonah didn't want to go. But Jonah went after a while, didn't he? <clears throat> and as Jonah walks down, he had a very cheering message as he walked through Nineveh. Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be destroyed. How's that for a sermon? <clears throat> Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be destroyed. Vain repetition, huh? <laughs> he just kept saying it. But the people of Nineveh responded from the king down to the lowest peasant. They repented, they turned from their evil ways, they fasted, they put on sackcloth, they even had the animals fast. And God repented of the evil that he thought to do. And he spared Nineveh. 
Or he says the reverse of that, his ability to reverse his decision to preserve a nation. In uh, verse 9, At what instance I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it? If it do evil in my sight, that it obey not my voice, then I will repent of the good wherewith I said I would benefit them. And of course we can think of Israel, the northern kingdom there, the southern kingdom of Judah, the fact that he sent Judah at this point into captivity, brought them back out of captivity some 536 B.C., and then finally he sent his son, and when they did not respond to his son, he gave them 40 more years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, and at the end of those 40 years, that nation which he had spoken to build and to plant, he reversed his decision, and uh, down it came. And now here we are, 2,000 years later, and the Jew is a standing monument to the fact that God can certainly reverse his dealings with a nation. And here the Jew stands, 2,000 years later, scattered to the ends of the world. Oh, he's brought them back, many of them, into his land, into their land, because he's not finished with them yet. But what a visible, powerful illustration of that verse the Jew is. Now we see the elaboration on his power as he continues in the application of it he takes it a step further the situation as it presently affected Judah at what instant I speak to pluck up and to pull down and to destroy a nation if that nation turned, where were we in that? Where was Judah? Had that pronouncement gone forth? Look at the 11th verse. Now therefore go to, speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I frame evil against you and devise a device against you. Whew. The pronouncement had gone forth, hadn't it? That's where they were, the counsel of God against them. At what instance I speak concerning a nation to pull down, to destroy, the pronouncement had gone forth. But along with that counsel comes a call the call to repentance. Repent ye now, every one from his evil way, and make your ways and your doings good. You notice what I said? Repent ye every one. It's an individual thing. A nation doesn't turn as a nation. A nation is comprised of individuals. And it must turn as individuals if the nation is to turn. Repent ye every one from his evil way, and make your ways and your doings good. The call of God to immediate repentance. How long may man go on in sin? 
How long will God forbear? Where does hope end? And where begin the confines of despair? One answer from the sky is sent. Ye who from God depart, while it is called today, repent, and harden not your heart. The council had gone forth, but with it, a call to immediate repentance. What about America? Where are we? Where are we? Has God's counsel gone forth? Is God right now in the process of devising a device against us? If it were Jeremiah standing in this pulpit and God giving a prophetic message through Jeremiah today, would he say, America, America, I devise a device against you. Turn now. The sword of Damocles hangs over your head. As Calvin says in reference to that nation, he says, Vengeance is now prepared and is suspended over your heads, except ye turn in due time. But if ye truly and from the heart repent, I'm ready to receive you. It's a terrifying passage, and yet it's an encouraging passage. It's terrifying in the sense that God's sovereignty, that he can take that nation and smash it. And there comes a time when that's what he does. He speaks concerning a nation. But yet if that nation, even at that last minute, turns, Where are we? Where is America? In that time schedule, as far as we are concerned, we see the final point of the application, the rejection by Judah in verse 12. And they said, there is no hope. But we will walk after our own devices and we will everyone do the imagination of his evil heart. Not that the rulers of the people actually said this. As a matter of fact, they denied that they were doing anything wrong. Why, Jeremiah, why do you keep saying that we've turned our backs on God and that we're such an evil nation? Why we go to church? Our nation is full of synagogues, uh, they would have said, uh, where the temple is crowded. Jeremiah, how can you say such things? And so what God is saying, though with their lips they don't say we will follow our own devices, that their behavior was such, in their day-to-day -day behavior, that that's what they were in effect saying in response to that warning and that call to repentance. There is no hope. We will walk after our own devices. We will, everyone, do the imagination of his evil heart. We see the instruction to Jeremiah to go to the potter's house, the observation when he goes of the potter, the application to the nation of Judah and to our own nation. Let's make one further application that Jeremiah doesn't make, but that is made to this same illustration of the potter and the clay elsewhere in Scripture. Let's make it a personal application. In Isaiah 45.9, Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. Shall the clay say to him that fashioned it, What makest thou? As a personal application. 
The lessons of it personally are the power of God over us as individuals. God can change our conditions overnight. What is the condition of your home? Everybody doing all right? Of your business? Of your health? Everything going okay? You know what? Overnight, God can change it. Ask Job. Ask Job. Ask Nebuchadnezzar. You remember Nebuchadnezzar walked on the walls of his palace. Look at this great Babylon which I built. And he was smitten until he learned that the Most High ruled among men and among nations. The power of God. What he gave, he can take away in a moment of time. The Jews and we might well disregard all threats and all dangers if we walk with the Lord. If they were really walking with God, they needn't fear anything. And the same is true of us, that if we really serve him and we belong to him, we've received Christ and we're walking with him, then we don't need to fear anything. Over in Isaiah chapter 51 and verse 12, God speaks of the protection and the power and the security that belongs to those who walk with him. I, even I am he that comforteth you. Who art thou that thou shouldest be afraid of a man that shall die? And of the son of man which is made as of grass. And forgettest the Lord thy maker that stretched forth the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. God says, if you belong to me and you're walking with me, don't you fear men and don't you fear anything. I'm with you. I comfort you. But they weren't. They weren't walking with him. Are you? We see the power of God as it applies personally. The purpose of God. The potter wrought a work on the wheels. He had something in mind. He was designing something. He wasn't playing games. He had a work that he was making. And so does God. God has a purpose for your life and for my life and for this world. Luther had a way of stating things that uh, were sometimes crass, but he said them to make them come home to our hearts. And Luther was emphasizing that God knows what he's doing and that God's purposes are good. You know, God doesn't willingly afflict the, the children of men, and God says that I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn and live. Turn ye, turn ye, why will ye die? And Luther was saying, if God told me to eat dung off the street, I'd eat it, and I'd know that he meant it for my good. God has a purpose, and God's purposes are good. The purpose there, of course, has to do with making something of the clay. And as the potter makes something of the clay, he reveals something of himself, doesn't he? When the potter gets through, we look at the pot that he made, and we're impressed maybe not so much with the beautiful pot as with the fantastic potter and his creativity. God created the world to reveal himself to the praise of the glory of his grace to display his attributes. And he wants to do that through you and through me. And he's designed us for this. 
It speaks of the potential of the clay, what that clay can become in the hands of the potter. But he calls, he has a purpose, and he is able. Apart from him, the clay cannot realize its potential. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. We see the power, the purpose, the process. He wrought a work on the wheels. That wheel, that speaks of God controlling all things. The potter turned the wheel and controlled the wheel. And his hands fashioned. And God controls the wheels of lives. And he brings circumstances into our lives to shape us to the pattern that he has for us. And usually he uses affliction, doesn't he? Usually it's a chipping away process. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourges every son whom he receives. What son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? One of my friends was telling me of a friend of his who was going down the street in a small town. He saw a big block of granite in this sculptor's store. And uh, several weeks later, he walked back and he looked and there was the most beautiful stallion that had been carved out of that block. And he was just overcome and he went in and he said, uh, how did you do that? That was fantastic. How did you make that beautiful stallion out of that block of granite? And the sculptor said, well, I took a chisel and I took a hammer and I just knocked off everything that wasn't a horse. <clears throat> well, that's what God's doing to you, isn't it? He's just taking a chisel and a hammer and he's knocking off everything that isn't a Jesus. He's making us after the pattern of his son, predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What a fantastic purpose God has for his. We see the, the process, and uh, it's a painful process. But you know, we are not clay, really. Although he compares us to clay, clay doesn't have a will. We have a will. We can be like those uh, people of Judah, and we can resist, or we can cooperate with the process. We can yield. We can be supple in his hands. That same chapter of Hebrews 12 goes on to say, Now, no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. It hurts. But afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them that are exercised thereby. When you respond to God's dealings with you, it produces something fruitful and peaceful in your life. But you can respond to God's dealings, whereas the clay, in a sense, couldn't. We see the power over the clay. We see the purpose that he has in mind. We see the process that he uses. You know one thing we need to see? We need to see the potter. We need to see the person of God. Because if I just see the principle of his sovereignty, of his authority, 
of the fact that he can smash it, of the fact that he uses affliction in his process of molding, if I just see the principle where I shrink back. So as G. Campbell Morgan points out, we need to see the potter. He reminds us of Philip's question to Jesus. Philip said to Jesus, Show us the Father. Show us the potter. And it sufficeth us. And we ask the same question, don't we? G. Campbell Morgan says, That's the cry of humanity. I must see God. Who is this potter of the universe? Absolute, supreme, molding humanity like clay working seriously toward a goal. Who is he? That's the question of all questions. And there remains little to say. For God has answered the cry. The son of his love said to Philip, and he says to us, He that has seen me hath seen the potter. In other words, the potter has in those hands that molds the clay nail prints. And he has nail prints in his feet, and he has a wound in his side, the potter, Jesus Christ. Can you trust the potter? Can you trust that his purpose is good? Can you trust him first as your Savior to take you and to begin to make you into something beautiful? You remember what was done with the money that Jesus was betrayed for. It's part of the mystery of his betrayal and his crucifixion that those 30 pieces of silver which were thrown down in the temple, Judas took them back and he said, I betrayed innocent blood and the priest wouldn't accept it and he threw it down. And they picked it up and they said, what do we do with it? It's blood money. We can't put it in the treasury. So they used it to buy the potter's field. They used it to buy that field that was right outside the potter's house where all those old broken pots, they were no good. He threw them out there. Christ came to purchase us who are broken and sinful and ruined and crushed so he could make us again into something wonderful and beautiful. That's what it's all about. That's why Christ came. Can you trust the potter? Charles Simeon says, Every attribute of God, every perfection of God, ought to call forth some corresponding action and emotion in our hearts. What should the sovereignty of God as displayed here call forth? First, the fear of God. The holy, awesome fear of God. So that I don't play with God. And I don't think that somehow it's in smart or it's intelligent to follow the world's way instead of God's way. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And yield before him instead of resisting him. Surrender to him as my master. Trust him to save me through his son who purchased that broken pottery with his blood. Have you done that? That's the beginning. But second, a meek submission. The sovereignty of God calls for an unquestioning submission to him. 
He knows what's best. He knows what he's making. Trust him. Yield to him. Don't complain of that discipline, of that wheel that he brings. And finally, a humble trust. A humble trust. If like the clay in a sense we'll just lie at peace and let him mold us as he will, then his work shall be perfected. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter. I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will while I am waiting, yielded and still. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Hold o'er my being absolute sway. Fill with thy spirit till all shall see Christ only always living in me. Let us pray. As our hearts abound, if you've been a Christian, but you've been fighting the modeling process, you've been resisting instead of having the attitude of mold me and make me after thy will, won't you really make that your prayer? Lord, mold me and make me after thy will. Have o'er my being absolute sway and yield your will to him. Trust him. And if you've never made that initial commitment of surrendering to him in the awesome fear of his sovereignty and the glad response to his gift of Jesus, right now, won't you do that? Invite Christ into your life that potter with the wounded hands and feet. Pray like this. Lord Jesus, thou art the potter, and I'm that broken pot out in the potter's field. Lord, thank you for the blood money that purchased me. I trust you now to begin to remake me, to redeem me, to forgive me, to work in my life, to make me into something beautiful. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Amen.